We'll hear argument next in Hammond versus Indiana. Mr. Friedman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court can decide these cases, as it decided Crawford, without testing the outer bounds of the Confrontation Clause by adopting a simple proposition that is easily understood by and intuitively sensible to ordinary lay people, and so capable of being passed on from generation to generation as one of the cornerstones of our fundamental liberties. A criminal conviction cannot be based on an accusation made privately to a known law enforcement officer. If a State wishes that such an accusation be presented in support of a conviction, then it must ensure that the accuser testifies in the manner long required by the common law system of criminal justice, in the presence of the accused, under oath, and subject to cross-examination. As in Crawford, the Court does not need to offer a comprehensive definition of the term testimonial. It is enough to say that an accusation to a known law enforcement officer must be testimonial under any plausible definition. When, when, for example, there's an undercover agent, law enforcement officer, let's think of the mafia or the uh, Ku Klux Klan, reveals himself, one of the co-conspirators during the ongoing conspiracy switches sides. But no, he doesn't switch. He's still in the conspiracy, makes a whole lot of statements. Those are all inadmissible, though they'd come in now because they would be uh, in the furtherance of the conspiracy. Statements in furtherance of the conspiracy, if I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, But there's, in other words, I've got your definition, and all I've tried to do is create a circumstance where while it fits your definition, it's made by a person that is in the conspiracy. So I make him undercover, the law enforcement officer. If it's an undercover law enforcement officer. But known. By known, I mean to the declarant. Yeah. By known, I mean to the declarant. So if it's, if it's an undercover agent, and so it's a statement to an undercover agent. So you're saying my hypothetical could never come up. What I'm trying to do is it seems to me that your hypothetical is going to take statements that would come in that are pretty far removed from the prosecution, that are in odd circumstances, are not just a testimonial at all in anybody's thought, but it keeps them out. I, I'm afraid I, I don't fully understand the hypothetical. If the, if the officer is not known to the declarant as a law enforcement officer, mm-hmm. then there's no problem. Then, then the statement He's known. If he, he's, he's known to the law enforcement mm-hmm. officer, and the member of the conspiracy is making a — It's continuing. It's a continuing conspiracy, but, but that statement to the law enforcement officer saying that somebody else in the conspiracy has committed a crime mm-hmm. would not, in fact, be in furtherance of the conspiracy. It would blow the conspiracy apart. Uh, you've convinced me I have a bad hypothetical. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, — Your Honor, I feel duty-bound to say there are no bad hypotheticals, but uh, there, there, are, there are easy ones, and I think uh, if, if it's a known officer — it's uh, in that situation. It's going to be uh, accusatorial. If it's not known officer, it's it, it's not accusatorial. What if a statement is made to a known law enforcement officer, providing information that's that's very incriminating against somebody, but it doesn't specifically identify that person? Does that fall within your test? I I, I believe it does. I, of course, in this case, we have both a description of the crime and an identification of. So the it's perpetrator. an accusation, even though it doesn't identify the person who is alleged to be the perpetrator. We, we, we could call it what we will. I think, I think that it still would be within the narrow pro- proposition that we're advocating, that, that a description of the crime to — So really your test is any evidence that's pro- — any statement made to the police or is an accus- is testimony? No, no, Your Honor. I think it, it either has to describe a crime or identify the perpetrator or, as in this case, do both. So — Any relevant evidence given to law enforcement is testimonial? 
Well, when you say when you say relevant, I think uh, that if the law enforcement officer, if, if the statement to a known law enforcement officer in the line of duty, it's it's uh, uh, almost always going to be testimonial. If it if it identifies the um, the perpetrator or describes the crime, I would say it's uh, clearly testimonial. Or if it's in response to the uh, um, to the officer's inquiries, it's if clearly testimonial. Somebody calls and says, "I just saw a blue Toyota uh, with." Uh, uh, Ohio plates uh, commit a hit and run. Uh, that's testimonial. I, I believe. I believe so. Now, now, in, in fact, that would provide some identifying information because it is a person who is associated with that blue, with that blue Toyota. <laughs> but if it's uh, simply um, uh, officer in the donut shop, I just saw Jack. He's back in town with no clear relation to any any crime. It's, that's presumably just chatter. And that wouldn't be testimonial, even if it, even if it later becomes relevant. But if it's relevant that Jack is back in town, then that's testimonial. If, if at the moment that it's made, the declarant understands that Jack being back in town might be useful in an investigation, or if a reasonable person in the position of the declarant would understand it, that would be testimonial. Yes, yes, Your Honor. Uh, so the, the basic principle for which we're advocating it does not lie at the outside of the of the definition of testimonial. I think it's simply a core proposition. And the people who are making all these statements are are to be understood as witnesses against somebody within the, the language of the confrontation clause. I think within the within the meaning of the confrontation clause, if those statements are allowed at proof as proof at trial without the person coming in, then what we have essentially done is created a system by which. People can create evidence for use by the legal system by engaging those statements without coming into court. That's, that's right. So I think one of the critical factors here is to imagine what happens if statements such as the ones in, in this case are admitted, are admissible, and this Court holds, holds that they are, then basically they always can be admitted. Then any state is free to create a system in which a statement to a responding officer comes in as proof. There's no need for the for the, uh, the declarant to show up at trial, and there's no doubt that the, that that is what would happen. California and Oregon have already adopted such statutes, and and my state of Michigan is on the verge of doing so. Statutes that, that say what? That say that say accusations to a uh, major law enforcement officer in the case of Oregon and the pending Michigan bill, accusations uh, of domestic violence are admissible so long as they're made reasonably freshly, but they give a 24-hour time frame, they're, they're admissible. No need for excitement. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea that, that the jurisdictions have limited this to, to uh, excited utterances is, is, not, is not so. If, if, if the Court uh, affirms the decision here, I think the message would go out that these, that these statutes are perfectly okay. And, and what, what is the theory on which the statutes are, are adopted? The, uh, What's the argument that they propose to say it's not testimonial? I know you disagree with it, but, but. <laughs> uh, Justice Kennedy, the, the, I don't think there is a theory, and I say that quite uh, seriously. I, I actually testified last month in, before the Michigan House on the uh, the bill, saying I believe this bill is blatantly unconstitutional. I believe it's going to be held unconstitutional within a few months. There was not a high level of interest in the constitutional argument before the legislature. I don't think there's a theory. I think the, I think the theory is that prosecutors say that these would be good laws to pass. So what's, what, you know, what's worrying me in, on this is, I'll tell you my concern without the hypothetical. Crawford wrenches the confrontation clause free of the hearsay rule. And therefore, a testimony, it might be testimonial even though 
uh, it is not hearsay or falls within an exception, doesn't fall within an exception, you understand what I'm saying. Fine. Now, you come along with a suggestion, and what struck me immediately was, but wait a minute, uh, can't I easily think, apparently not easily, can't I easily think of instances where it would be testimonial, but it isn't an accusation made to a policeman? And conversely, can't I easily think, not easily, of instances where, well, it would have come in, but it was statements made to a policeman, maybe years before, maybe about this, maybe about that, maybe it's a hospital record, maybe it's a business record. There are all kinds of exceptions to the hearsay rule, and they don't run parallel to the test you've just given. That's what's worrying me with the test. Your Honor, let let me be very clear. Uh, We do not propose that this categorical principle, that an accusation to a law enforcement officer is a definition of what's testimonial. We regard this as a core category of testimonial statements, such as the core categories that the Court listed in Crawford. So, so if a statement fits within that, within that category, that is sufficient to make it testimonial. Such as in Crawford, but in Crawford it was the kind of formal statement the Court said, material such as affidavits, custodial examinations, prior testimony that the defendant was unable to cross-examine, or similar pretrial statements. Similar pretrial statement is not an agitated woman calling 9-11 or telling a police officer who, as in your case, who comes in response to a call, there's a disturbance going on in that house, get there. Right. Right. Um, I, I understand, J- Justice Ginsburg. Of course, Crawford was only l- listing a non-exclusive uh, um, um, list of, uh, of, core, of core categories. Yes, we, I, we, that, that, that quotation was a, dis- a description of what Crawford described as the core. Right. Not, not the totality. Of- Cer- certainly not the totality. And if you say, well, this statement wasn't formal, it, it doesn't make sense, and I think it conflicts with uh, a comment in Crawford in footnote 3 to say, well, uh, informal testimony is, uh, is okay, as the Court said in, in Crawford. Uh, if if um, uh, sworn out-of-court testimony is invalid, it wouldn't make sense to say that unsworn testimonial statements are perfectly okay. Uh, now, so far as the principle that, that because the witness is under agitation, the, the, uh, the Confrontation Clause doesn't, uh, doesn't apply, I don't think that's, uh, that's valid at, at all. It certainly isn't valid historically. If, if it were, we would have seen examples over history in which uh, agitated uh, uh, declarants came, uh, their statements came in. But uh, as, as General Dreeben has indicated, the very, the very uh, um, organizing principle of prosecution, it, it was that the accuser must come and, come and testify. Did the legislatures that have passed laws of the kind you described have before them information that there is a rather high incidence of the victim being intimidated and therefore not showing up in court to testify? Uh, Your Your Honor, um, in the the Old Bailey Sessions papers, there were uh, approximately 2 percent of the cases the victim, who was the prosecutor, did not show up. It was a recurring, a recurring matter. Why they didn't show up may have been for various reasons. And I want to emphasize that the state, in the very first paragraph of its brief, emphasizes that there are numerous reasons why, in the domestic violence context, the the accuser may not testify in court. And in those 
roughly 2 percent of all the cases, which is 2,000 cases, in not a single one — well, I'm sorry, there was one in which there was a, a conviction. That's because, because the defendant, uh, because the defendant uh, confessed. But in all the others, the accusation was uh, — the, the case was uh, summarily dismissed. Well, you, you have to assume not only that the victim is unwilling or reluctant to testify, you have to assume that the victim has disappeared because the victim, unwilling or not, could be subpoenaed. Isn't that right? The, uh, uh, the victim could be subpoenaed, and uh, in, in this case, as in Davis, the victim was subpoenaed, but subpoenas have to be enforced. And, and I think uh, in some cases the prosecution does, uh, simply doesn't enforce the subpoenas. It's what uh, the uh, Cook County right. — But I'm saying the scope of the problem is, is, is much more narrow than what is suggested by simply describing how often it is that the, uh, that the complaining witness is reluctant to testify. That doesn't stop anything. Well, Reluctant or not, that witness can be, can be subpoenaed. Th- that, is, that is correct, Justice Scalia. It is the state's choice whether to compel the, the person to, to testify. And if, as Cook County has done, they put in uh, particular efforts to protect the witness, to encourage her to testify, then prosecutors get a very high return. That is, uh, in, in the Cook County program, 80 percent of, uh, of the witnesses testify. They get a very high uh, conviction rate, and they protect the, the witnesses. So I think the message from this Court is going to be one of two things. Either it's okay to adopt the California-Oregon type of statute and just, just let any statements come, come in, or we have to put in the resources to, uh, to, into domestic violence to ensure that the witnesses come, come to court. I don't know why the or would necessarily follow. I mean, if you prevail, there's nothing that compels the state to put money in what has been suggested, job training programs, shelters, um, counselors for these people. Nothing at all compels the state to do that. They they would not be compelled to do that, but uh, they would not be compelled constitutionally to do that. They would simply be deprived of of, of the so-called evidence-based prosecution, which has just been a phenomenon of the last 14 years. Uh, your point, I th- thought, was that that would be the incentive uh, that, that, for police departments, that, of course. That, 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 they that want is, to make their cases. That's correct. They, they, would, uh, they, they want to make their cases, and, and I think they can make their cases best if the witness testifies, in which case, uh, under the Confrontation Clause, now, now construed, there's, there's no uh, objection then to bringing in the prior statement at all. What about present sense perceptions? That might be a good one. And, and apparently, uh, 8031 has the first exception right. to the hearsay rule is present sense impression. Yes. So on the phone, somebody is describing very calmly, very calmly to the policeman, the terrible crime that he sees going on in front of him. Now, I gather from the fact that it's an imp- uh, that it is a uh, exception that now in the federal courts that would be admissible. Well, it would have been under Roberts, uh, uh, presumably. Yeah, but, uh, no, that forget the con- that, yes, every day of the week they come in. Hmm. Is that right? Present sense impressions. It's here is the first exception it's, it, to the hearsay it's, rule. It's an exception. In civil cases, there's no problem. In, in criminal cases. There it is, 8031. That's right. And then you've practiced this for years. <laughs> See, I, I mean, you're an expert in this, and I, I think — uh, my impression, I just tell me if I'm wrong, is it's 8031. It says a present sense impression comes in. So I guess it does, if I'm, unless I'm 
Yes, but until until White v. Illinois basically let the, the guard down, these these statements did not come. In, accusatory statements that might have been in present sense impressions ah. did not were, were not the basis for prosecutions. Und, uh, once once White v. Illinois was decided, then then uh, courts uh, allowed. If we adopt the routine your rule. A person calls up on the phone and says, "I'm here at the baseball game. There's a terrible crime going on in front of me," and he describes it. Right. To the police officer, that no longer could come in. I, I, I believe that is correct because that. I should be, hope not. It, 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 it should. It's an accusatory. It's an accusatory statement to, to a, 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 a to law enforcement. Now, I mean, the court could have wanted uh, carve out or, or draw the line at uh, uh, statements that are describing the contemporaneous, the absolutely contemporaneous commission of a crime. I don't think it's a particularly good line to. No, no, I, I wasn't uh, yeah. trying to reduct you out of sort right. I just wanted to know what the facts are about the rule. I was just that's what the, the, the 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 rule is that the hearsay law, uh, the, the rule against hearsay prov- uh, provides uh, the modern rule against hearsay provides no no restriction. The confrontation clause should. And let, let, let me address uh, the, the, uh, uh, your concern, Justice Breyer. That is this hearsay rather than than confrontation. I think. I think that the notion of the accuser is central to the confrontation right and always and always has been and those 2000 cases uh, really developed as of 1791 the rule uh, against hearsay was barely developed and uh, we cite in, uh, the, the rule against hearsay was barely developed and Edmund Burke said that a trained parrot could recite all the laws of evidence in 5 minutes and that is no longer that is no longer so um, um, Edmund Burke say that and Edmund, Edmund Burke said that, yes. Uh, 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 Friedman, can I go back to uh, your answer that the police will then, in response to the position that you're urging, will then um, protect the victim and all these fine things. It wasn't so long ago that the police wouldn't bother with these prosecutions at all. They didn't care about them. And if you... Uh, say you're going to have to drag in the victim, you're going to have to jail her for contempt if she's so scared that she won't testify. They'll say, who needs it? We've got a lot of other crimes to prosecute. Well, I I hope not, Your Honor, and I I believe that we've gotten past the point. I mean, I think we now recognize how serious a a crime domestic violence is. Let me emphasize that it is, just as now, sometimes the prosecutor will compel a victim to testify, it will still be that sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. That will be a matter of, of state policy. There are other approaches as, as well. And, and uh, hopefully the, the compulsion isn't necessary. I think if the prosecutors pay, pay sufficient att- uh, attention and, and care. But beyond that, there is the possibility of forfeiture if, indeed, the reason w- why the victim will not testify is because of intimidation. Then, then the prosecution, it is open to the prosecution to prove that. In many cases, the case can be proven. It's very powerfully hard to prove, isn't it? I don't think so, Your Honor. I, and, and of course, it remains to be seen just how uh, easier, how hard it, it is to, to prove. But in fact, the, as Mr. Fisher said, the uh, rules of evidence don't apply at the, uh, at the preliminary hearing. It's the judge, not the, uh, uh, the jury that has to decide. And the standard of proof presumably would not be beyond a reasonable doubt. So, uh, But you are back, at, as Justice Breyer pointed out earlier, you're making the prosecution prove two crimes instead of one. 
Well, uh, intimidation is, is a crime, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a full criminal case. It would be, as in many other contexts, simply a preliminary hearing on, on a threshold issue, as we have for every evidentiary problem. For every, any, every, any evidentiary problem, such as does the present sense impression exception apply, there's a preliminary issue. No, but issue. in every evidentiary problem, the, the, the root of the problem is not the inability of the or the unwillingness of the primary victim to testify. I mean, that's what makes intimidation so hard to prove in these cases, is because you have to get the — if the intimidation is successful, uh, the witness uh, f- uh, to testify about the, the, the crime is unavailable and unwilling to do so. Well, it, it, it would remain for the Court to determine what the standards are for proving — Well, you would have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I, I wouldn't — This is a, a pretrial hearing on whether the, 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 uh, there's been intimidation. Couldn't the judge just find it more likely than not that the defendant has intimidated a witness? Prior decisions of the court suggest that that would most likely be the the standard. Uh, the, it may the, be. the judge can't make that finding if the witness doesn't testify, can he? Oh, I, I think that that the judge may well, and I think it would remain. How is that? The prosecutor goes in and says, "We think the defendant has intimidated the witness by saying he's not going to support her financially. He's going to leave, whatever." And the and the presumably the the defendant says, "No, I, no." Right. And, the, and the witness isn't there. The judge says, well, I find by a preponderance of the evidence that he has intimidated? I think it remains an open question what the standards would be uh, for, for proof and whether that would be constitutionally accepted. Uh, th- this, of course, is a matter for, for another day. I think what the Court can't do is effectively as, uh, assume as a — or create an irrebuttable presumption that in all domestic violence cases, the, the victim has been intimidated, which is what the state asks, even though they acknowledge at the very outset that there are many other reasons why, why the victim may not testify. The, the, there's no domestic violence exception for the confrontation right, just as there's no organized crime exception for the confrontation right. So I do think that, that what the procedures are for forfeiture is, is a big open question. But, but, but it's the state's burden to prove forfeiture. It, 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 it can't be assumed as a per se matter. We have a second choice rule. I mean, we have Professor Amar, who has pretty formal criteria. Yes. We have the rule that you just enunciated. And I don't want, before you sit down, to, I want to find out if you have an intermediate position, a fallback position. Well, our, our narrow rule is, is simply the, the accuse, uh, an accusation to a law enforcement uh, officer. I, we, we, of course, uh, believe that the more general test is reasonable expectation of the declarant, and that's where, where I disagree with, uh, with Professor Amar. I don't know that he would, uh, I don't know that he would disagree. I'd be surprised if he would disagree that an accusation to a law enforcement officer is, is uh, testimonial, um, uh, because, because that is such a, uh, a, a narrow principle. Um, now, he, now, he does speak about, uh, about formality, but formality, for the reasons I suggested, I don't think, I don't think makes an awful lot of sense because it then gives the police officers and, and prosecutors an incentive to take testimony informally. And what we have then is, as in this case, we have not the affidavit in, in, which, which the state is contending is admissible. They now can see that that's inadmissible. The evidence on which this prosecution is based is a police officer's rendition of what he was told orally which is a denigrated form of, uh, form of evidence. That's where a formality rule will, will get you. Where, where do you come out on the person running out of the house and yelling to her neighbor with the law enforcement officer standing by? And, and if it's not that the statement is not to the law enforcement officer, but he or she overhears it. If, 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 the, if the speaker knows that the law enforcement officer is there. 
then, then I, then, then, it, then it's not within the narrow categorical rule for which we're, we're uh, asking now. It may come within the general test of uh, reasonable expectation. Is anybody, is anybody working for the state a law enforcement officer? Uh, no, uh, not, not within, the na- uh, within the narrow categorical rule that we're asking. Uh, I think it's another question if, say, you're speaking to a, uh, a doctor who's uh, an employee at a state hospital. Or a 911 operator who was well, an agent of, of the police. A, a 911 operator is a direct conduit to the police, and the police are a direct conduit to the court. And, and that addresses the, uh, uh, your hypothetical, Justice Scalia, about the, the, the affidavit right to the court. Uh, the, the, the person writes an affidavit right to the court. Under, under the, uh, the, the theory presented by the state, under the resemblance theory, let's take away the, uh, the sworn part of the affidavit. It's just a letter or, an, or a message over the Internet or a videotape. All of those would be allowed because there's no formality, because there's no interrogation. And that's a grotesque result. I, I'm not Go- sure what, what sense it makes. Two cases. Uh, the woman runs out and... and and says, he, he stabbed me, I'm dying, he's a murderer. Case one, it's a, a, a neighbor. Case two, it's a police officer, and she sees that he's a police officer. Uh, why, sh- why should there be a difference? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I'm, I'm not saying there necessarily should be a difference. I think, I think in the — Well, I uh, thought your test was, if she knows that he's a police officer, it's testimonial. But we're saying that is an easy case. That's what Professor Mosteller called a dead-bang case, where it's made to uh, a police officer. Let me put it this way. I don't know why one case is so easier than the other. Be- I think it's an easier case because the police officer is a direct conduit to the, uh, to the machinery of, of justice. When you're speaking to a police officer, you know you're speaking to the state. If the Court has no further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Fisher. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Amy Hammond's oral statements to Officer Mooney arose in an emergency situation very similar to a 911 call, not in a situation where a detective was attempting to subvert the judicial system by developing evidence in secret with no intention of ever letting the witness testify at trial. She's sitting down at a table, as I recall it, with the, with the police officer on the other side of the table? She may, yeah. As a cup of coffee? Well, I don't know about that, but she was in the living room. There was a cup of coffee, too. Or maybe I don't know where I got that from. Maybe I made it up. Well, what we know is that the — It didn't seem to me a terribly emergency situation in, 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 in that kind of a context. I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. We're talking about a woman who has, uh, has stated that she has suffered a, a beating from her husband, that — a, a beating that may flare up at any time if the officers withdraw, and the officer needs to know what happened so that he can properly address the situation. At the time, the officer is right there in the house. Well, there's certainly no emergency at the time. Now, you could say that, that, that the woman is frightened about a recurrence, but if, if that's your definition of an emergency, it's going to cover an awful lot of situations. Well, I think it's the, the moment to consider is not just the moment when the officers are present. But, in fact, what would happen if the officers were to do nothing, which is one of the choices that I suppose the officers had. They could find out what was going on and address the situation, or they could withdraw doing nothing and then leave Amy Hammond to her own devices in a highly explosive situation. Uh, they — we don't know exactly what, what Officer Mooney said when he went back into the living room, but what we know is that there was no apparent interrogation of any type. We know that Amy Hammond at that point told him the story of the argument that had taken place and the resulting physical abuse. Now, what we know from, from the accusation test uh, that is put forth by, uh, by the petitioner is that uh, the reason that it doesn't apply apparently to all statements to 
to police officers is that it must somehow take account of the co-conspirator statement. Uh, but we don't otherwise have any grounding of that test in the history of the Confrontation Clause. The test that we are proposing, the, the broader test that we are proposing, the resemblance test, uh, flows directly from statements in Crawford suggesting that the way that we know what is testimonial and what is not is by examining the lessons of history. And what we're proposing is that in any particular context, if the statement resembles one of those historical abuses in the civil law tradition, then in that circumstance it's testimonial. But if it isn't, isn't the problem, though, I mean, as Crawford said, uh, those, those examples defined the core. They were the paradigms, but they didn't purport to cover the whole ground. And it seems to me that your argument is to turn the core into the exclusive examples, in which case the Confrontation Clause in the real world is never going to apply. Your Honor, I think the important lesson from Crawford in that regard is, is the methodology. And the methodology was, let's look at history. What does history tell us the founders were concerned about? And the Court listed the specific examples of affidavits, depositions, pretrial hearings, and, a, and expanded that even to include interrogations. And in particular, excuse me, particular cases coming, uh, coming up, if there is evidence that, that the statements do correspond to historical abuses, uh, even if those abuses were not listed in Crawford, then that would be uh, a different situation. That would I'm, be I'm not sure that that was the only concern of the founders. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the fact that, that the state could corrupt the, uh, the statement through the interrogation, I'm not sure that was the only concern. Uh, I, I think the founders uh, believed in a judicial system, at least in criminal cases, where the person has a right to cross-examine his accuser, whether the fact that the, I, I am, I'll put it this way, I am quite sure that it would have been held a violation of the Confrontation Clause if, as the, the prior example I gave, someone wrote out an affidavit and sent it directly to the court, no intervening police in, interrogation at all, just wrote out an affidavit from, from France, mailed it to the court, and the court has this affidavit. I am sure that would be a smack-bang violation of the Confrontation Clause. And there, there's none of the, the abuse that are, on which you, you would hinge the entirety of the violation. Well, except that we do know that, that affidavits, I, I agree, would have been prohibited. And that's one of the classic forms of testimony, indeed, that was enumerated in Crawford and that was kept out at the founding. And that falls into a very well-defined category. Even but if one of the reasons for that is, uh, let's assume you had a completely honest uh, police officer. You may have a motive on the part of the witness to frame the, the defendant. I mean, that's another reason. Well, I think it, it, ostensibly could be. I think what we know, though, but looking back at, what, at, the, at the rally trial and at, at, the, at the trials, uh, even in the colonial period, was that the founders were concerned about abuses by the state, in, in particular in interrogations and in eliciting uh, these affidavits and in using pretrial testimony. Well, but I'm suggesting to you that uh, it often happens uh, that there are false charges made that the, that the police believe to be true. The, the false charges scenario is, and, and is this is fully consistent with prohibiting testimonial statements. Again, I think what Crawford was talking about in terms of trying to understand the confrontation clause was not uh, simply to hypothesize various problems that, that type, different types of evidence could present if it weren't cross-examined, but instead to examine more particularly what the founders were concerned about. 
And that was not one of the of the categories. Simply, may I ask this, uh, Mr. Fisher? Uh, what is your answer to Justice Scalia's hypothetical, a, a entirely volunteered affidavit by the accuser? Is that admissible or not? I think that well, it, certainly it's testimonial, uh, and so, so that would be prohibited by the Confrontation Clause. Yet that was clearly not an example that would fall within the Marian practice. Well, whether it would have come in under it the — It doesn't resemble it, is what I'm saying. Whether it would have been a problem under the Marian practice, I think, is only part of the story. And certainly Crawford recognized that affidavits as a category were part of the, of the tradition that led to the abuses that the founders were concerned about. So Marian is, again, part of the story, but not necessarily the whole thing. Uh, now, when we articulate this resemblance be, — be, Before you leave that, I mean, surely the affidavit isn't, isn't what's magical. I mean, suppose — I'm going to change my hypothetical. The person recites his accusation uh, on a tape recorder and mails the tape to the court. Now, are you going to say, well, it's not an affidavit? You'd exclude that as well, wouldn't you? Well, I I don't know that I would because, again, you've you've got the form that Crawford was concerned about. The affidavit is the classic. That would make no sense at all. I mean, that, that, that is just the worst sort of formalism. If you do it in affidavit, it's, uh, it's bad, but if you put it on a tape, it's, it's good. I, I cannot understand any reason for that. Well, I don't know that the analysis has to end there. I think, for example, there were other circumstances where other types of communications were problematic. In, in Raleigh's trial, for example, uh, Cobham had submitted a letter, and that was recited as part of the, the concern. Now, if the court were to determine that a recording of that sort was similar enough, it resembled enough, that sort of abuse, then yes, it could Mr. be testimony. Let me again be sure I understand your position. Would the unsworn letter that Justice Scalia describes be admissible or inadmissible under your view? I think that there is evidence historically that a letter would be testimonial, certainly coming out of Cobham's case and, and other sources. So then you don't rely on the affidavit point. Well, I think it's, it's a matter of what, what is covered, what is mentioned in history. Affidavit is one of those, uh, the, those categories. Letters, in particular in Raleigh's trial, was another area that may have been problematic. And but I think if, that, if that's your criterion, are you going to draw the distinction between the letter and the tape recording? Well, I think that that is the, the, the resemb- whether we have the resemblance test doesn't require us to answer that question, because I think that the examination the court would undertake would, well, let's, again — Let's answer it. Is, is the tape recording like the letter, so that it, it, it's inadmissible? I think it's — I think it is very similar to the letter and, and could well be inadmissible. Uh, but I don't know that it's it, — if the court adheres to the test that it set forth in Crawford, that it's looking for forms of testimony that were prohibited at common law, certainly that would not have been one of them. So a videotape — a videotape of a crime scene is admissible, Right. I think that's that's right. Now, if it's if, if you have a videotape of someone that, that's responding to an interrogation, that's an entirely different no. thing. But a, but a videotape of a crime scene uh, again would be would be not testimonial. But a tape recording by the same person who videotaped the crime scene describing what he saw, you agree would be excluded. I think that there's a high chance that could be be excluded. So what's the test? It's the resemblance test. And the question resemblance to to the historical abuses that the founders were trying to address. And the which question were. Well, which were, uh, in particular, we know affidavits. We also know something about letters. And the question with the tape recording is, is it enough like? Does it resemble those enough? Do you the problem the with your examples is that none of these are abuses. As I see it, the examples, the tape recording mailed in and the volunteer statement, I don't see how you can call those abuses. Well, I think the abuse comes not simply in how they were created, but, in, but then in how they were later used. And, and again, we're talking about uh, trying to, to craft a rule in part that has some bright lines to it based on, on just what was, Why what forms the, were not used. Why is the bright line that the government has urged 
that this is a cry made in an urgent situation, when one doesn't, the declarant doesn't think rationally, will this be used eventually in a trial, where the declarant wants to stop an imminent threat? I certainly think that that follows from the test, that we, the overall test that we propose. That's a different test than the resemblance test that you're proposing. Our position is it's a corollary to it, and certainly it's a narrower test and applies, I think, here and in, 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 in both cases today. And it provides the opportunity to resolve both cases uh, on the notion that when the officers were at the scene, they were in no way behaving like inquisitors. Uh, they showed up. They were, they could, they were in the middle of, uh, of an abusive situation that could explode at any time. Uh, and they needed to know what what was going on in order to defuse the situation. So these, this case could be resolved on that much, on much narrower ground. It's imp- it's important here also to to recognize that uh, what the what the prosecution did has no no similarity to uh, what would happen at the common law. We have here the government uh, issuing a subpoena to Amy Hammond to come and testify, uh, and obviously showing that they would have preferred the live testimony in this case. Was there any uh, showing at all of whether they made the police or the prosecutor made any effort to enforce the subpoena? Uh, There was no such effort, Your Honor. Um, But if I may be permitted to go beyond the record just a little bit, what we we do know is that the case was continued one time because uh, Amy Hammond did not show up in response to a subpoena, and that the second time the, the trial proceeded. Uh, but there was no effort to send someone out to, to enforce it uh, or to bring any sort of contempt sanction. Let's assume you're, you, you have here a woman who, sitting down in the kitchen with a police officer, talks to the police officer and then signs an affidavit. Did she sign the affidavit at that time? That's right, yes. And that affidavit was not admissible because it's an affidavit. Correct. But the police officer who testified to what she said and what he wrote down in the affidavit that she signed, that does get in. Correct. I I can't see why that makes any sense at all. I mean, she she was either testifying when she spoke and then signed the affidavit as evidence of her testimony, or or else she wasn't testifying, in which case both the affidavit and the oral statement should be. I can't. I can't see drawing a line between those two. It really seems very strange to me. I think whether you look at it from her perspective or from the officer's perspective, that something did change in the moment between the oral statement and the affidavit. If you look at it from from the officer's perspective, once Amy Hammond disclosed to him what had happened and and gave him information that he needed to handle the situation, then he could go about handling the situation. He didn't need the affidavit to do that. Once he turned to get the affidavit, he, he was transitioning to less from an emergency mode, more to an evidence-gathering mode. If, you're, if you are looking at it from the standpoint of Amy Hammond, then at that point, you know, when, when Officer Mooney is, is in the house and has her husband uh, you know, in another room, and she's trying to just describe what's going on so that she can be protected, that's a far different Well, but it's a, it's a classic mixed motive case. We don't know when the officer is sitting down with her and asking the questions whether his primary motive is to make sure the guy doesn't come back or if his primary motive is to help make the case against the guy. It's both. 
Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that officers faced with an emergency situation are primarily uh, going to be working for, from a concern of safety for their own and for others. And so even if it is a mixed motive, I think the, the, the point is that that particular circumstance, it's reasonable to infer uh, where there's an emergency, on, ongoing emergency, an ongoing immediate safety concern, that safety and security are going to be the primary motive. Why does his motive matter? I mean, the, the issue is whether she is testifying, whether she is a witness. And I don't see how that changes when she tells him these things orally and when she signs the affidavit afterwards. It seems to me she's testifying as to what events had occurred. Well, let me be clear that we're not suggesting a subjective inquiry into the officer's motive. But what we are saying is that whether a statement is testimonial depends on whether the government is is purely collecting evidence making someone undergo an interrogation, for example, or whether they are performing tasks that really were not part of, of, uh, of any type of police function at the founding, which is to, sort of a community caretaking public safety function. Uh, so that by definition, in eliciting statements concerning the immediate safety issue, the police officer could not have been engaged in the kinds of abuses right. that gave this is, this is helpful, very helpful to me, but I'm trying to see what you're driving at. I'm imagining the woman saying, he's hitting me, he's just hit me, she's in tears. That's excited utterance, not. Then suddenly the officer, five minutes later, says, I've heard what you said, let's reduce it to writing, here's the formal affidavit, blah, blah, blah. That is. But to prevent Mr. Friedman's problem, we're going to have to say as to the second, that is, even if you don't have the formality. You see, everything's the same, but not the formality. Now, how do we do that? I'm not sure if I'm following it. Not I'm, I'm making the distinction you're making mm-hmm. between right. she's in tears, excited utterance, or race just die around there, just what you were talking about. Now think of the second affidavit. When he reduces it to writing, that's yeah. different, calmer, clearly, motive to testify, etc. Fine. But now what Mr. Friedman pointed out is if we make it turn solely on the formality, a piece of paper, a stamp, etc., They'll just avoid that. So we're going to have to sweep into the second the circumstance where everything's the same but the formality. And that's where I have the difficulty. Well, again, the, 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 the difficult task of understanding the confrontation clause is to figure out what limits there might be. And, the, and in Crawford, the methodology was, what does history tell us the framers were concerned about? And certainly the formal affidavit was something that they were very concerned about. The less formal forms, they were not. Uh, and certainly when it comes to something uh, as as recent, uh, you know, relatively speaking, as, as the community caretaking function of the police, that was in no way part of, of, of the abuses that the framers were concerned about. Uh, and so I think even if the Court were to limit its decision to that part of the test, uh, resolving the other instances according to the resemblance test or, or trying to figure out where to draw that, uh, you know, that line uh, could come later, consistent with its decision in this case. But your answer, I take it, assumes that the framers had no concern with the capacity of the Court to test the, the validity of the truth of the statement. Well, I, I'm not entirely sure if that's the case. I mean, I, of course, they were uh, operating in a, in a circumstance where, where hearsay rules uh, were, were part of, of trial process. Certainly also uh, to the extent that, that a particular procedure is, is outrageous, the, a due process concern might arise. But well, but no, but I'm, I'm not talking about outrageous circumstances in which the, the, the statement was taken. I'm talking about the capacity of the court by whatever means to test 
the truth of that statement once it is placed before the court. And I understood your argument, Justice Breyer, to assume that that testing function was not within the contemplation of the framers. I think it was with respect to, to the, the abuses, the testimony elicited through the abuses that gave rise uh, you know, to the clause, that the com- or, I'm sorry, the civil law type abuses. They did want to test that, but the current concern. So that you're, you're, you would then say they want to, they want to test certain, in certain cases where they think there may have been an abuse in the elicitation of the statement. But if there is, if there is no reason to suspect that the statement was taken under untoward circumstances, they were not concerned to test its validity. I think that, that that's largely accurate, but they were dealing with, I think, a rather set form. Is that your position? Well, yes, but, but if I may add a clarification, which is to say, the reason I think that we could circumscribe, circumscribe affidavits, regardless of whether the elicitation abuses are present, is simply for ease of administration, that abuses known to the framers would have been arising in a circumstance where there would have been those abuses, and, and as a form. No, don't, don't you think the framers were aware of the fact that although there were or enforcement abuses, Raleigh's case, and so on. There were also abuses uh, every day of the week on the part of people who gave false testimony because they had grudges against the <coughs> defendant. Do you think that was totally out of the minds of the framers, so as to support the distinction that, that as a general rule, you were suggesting? We don't know exactly all of the details that would have that, that they were contemplating. Well, why would why would we impute that that unconcern to the framers uh, about the the need to test statements which may very well have have been given uh, because of envy, grudge, and so on? Because of of what we do know and, and what Crawford said that we do know, which is that we know that they were responding to things like Raleigh's trial. Uh, and to uh, stamp act, you know, enforcement, other... Well, but doesn't, doesn't that get us back to the fact that those examples were given in Crawford as paradigm examples if, you know, those were, I think, the word poor was used. Uh, but, it, but Crawford was not limited to that. And if it's not limited to that, uh, why, in effect, does the... Does the uh, do, should we conclude that the concern of the clause stops short uh, of the self-interested uh, witness, even though... He didn't make an affidavit. Again, if I may be permitted to finish, the methodology, methodology of Crawford is to look for known circumstances of abuse about which the framers were concerned, and we don't have that sort of historical evidence more generally. Thank, Thank you. you, Counsel. Mr. Gorenstein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We are asking the Court to apply the same state, uh, standard to statements made to officers at the scene as to statements made during a 911 call. Um, if the statement is made in response to police questions that are reasonably necessary to determine whether an emergency exists. Can I ask you, under your view, is the affidavit admissible? The affidavit is not admissible. Why not? The affidavit is, is not admissible because by that point the officer had the information that he needed to resolve the emergency. And what he was soliciting at that point and I would suggest the reason it was not admissible is it's very clear that the affidavit is a testimonial statement by a witness that the a defendant had a right to confront. The constitutional I, right is the right to confront the witnesses I, against him. I, I was just getting to that, Justice Stevens, oh. that the, the, the emergency was resolved, and at that point, you say he if was the officer independently repeats what is said in the affidavit, 
then he's the witness against no, not No, he's, he's not — if he was repeating what was said in the affidavit, that's a different point. He's repeating the statement that was made before the affidavit was given. That was at a point at which the, there was still an immediate danger and that he was asking a question that was reasonably necessary to determine whether that danger existed and, if so, how to resolve it. What was the immediate danger? When I mean, the immediate danger was — In the room across the kitchen table from, from, from the woman. The te- He's the situ- not on the end of a phone line. He's in the room across the kitchen table. That, that's correct. And, and the problem here is the danger was what would happen if the officers left. When the, when the officer came in and saw a frightened Miss Hammond, he saw wreckage on the floor, he had reason to be concerned that there was a very recent attack on her and that if he left the scene, that attack would be renewed. Asking Miss Hammond what happened was reasonably necessary to determine whether that emergency existed and, if so, how to resolve it. Now, once he had that information, he had what he needed to resolve the emergency. In and a situation that, like that, what was needed to resolve the situation, if he believed what Mrs. Hammond said, was to arrest Mr. Hammond. That's correct. So he could — you think he could gather as much evidence as was necessary to arrest Mr. Hammond? I, I do not. Um, at some Why not? Why doesn't that follow? Well, at, at some point, what, what turns into emergency resolution moves over into interrogation. And once you reach interrogation, then you have reached the core of what Crawford ca- talks about. How so do it, we know when that line is crossed? Yeah, what you said, reasonably necessary to protect safety. That's okay. Interrogation is not good. But how, how does one tell when one stops and the other starts? I, I, I think this is going to be a line-drawing question, but when you have a situation like this one, where you have an officer who's just on the scene in the immediate wake of a, of a domestic dispute, he asks a single question, what happened, in, in, in circumstances in which he knew, needed to know the answer to that question to make sure he could leave and leave her there safely. That's not inter- interrogation. If he sat around for a half hour with a back-and-forth and, and give-and-take and trying to press and get to the situation in that kind of back and forth, that would be interrogation colloquially. And it's, it's that kind of line that the court is going to need to do. Why? Because he might be interrogating with no idea at all, primarily in his mind of later court appearance. He wants to find out if there are guns in the house. He wants to find out if there are other people in the house. He wants to find out if somebody's being held ha- captive. He wants to find out if these are the same people who did some other crime that's immediately taking place. What's the relationship? There are all kinds of interrogation. You're saying that all that interrogation by a policeman can't come in under the confrontation? The confrontation clause bars under Crawford uh, police <clears throat> interrogation. And the, the, the situation is one in which we are not going to be able to examine the individual motives of officers in every case, and individual declarants in every case. What we are looking for is a categorical rule that is going to capture the likely motivations in both cases. And when you have emergency question, you're likely dealing with a situation which, both from the officer side and from the declarant side, you're going to be having people attempting to resolve an immediate danger of harm. That, you that, get- that assumes this te- your, your focus on whether the, the you know the, uh, it's an interrogation or not. It, 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 is, it assumes that the only focus of the confrontation clause is on prosecutorial abuse somehow. And, and as, as Justice Souter was suggesting, I don't think that was the exclusive. No, we don't, we don't think that's the exclusive focus either, and we think interrogation can capture both, too. 
that when you get to the point of interrogation, what's happening with the witness is getting an increasing understanding that what this is being sought for is to build a case. I think the biggest problem with the, the two rules that are proposed on the other side, that is, the accusation rule and the reasonable anticipation rule, is it captures within them these emergency statements that really don't have fall within any ordinary understanding of what testimony is. If I go to my house and it's late at night, I hear suspicious noises, and I see somebody and get a partial description of him, and I call 911, I'm seeking to avert an immediate danger to myself. I don't think under any stretch of the imagination anybody would refer to that as testimony. Yet under his rule, of course, the Sixth Amendment doesn't use the word testimony, does it? No, it, it does not. But what the Court said in Crawford was that the term witness was referring to testimony that people who make testimony that, Maybe statements. you're not a witness when you make the call, but when that same call is admitted into court, then, then it strikes me that you are a witness. But, but that's not the definition of witness that, that, that Crawford adopted. That would As be, it happens in the other case, in the companion case today, the prosecution itself, in its summation to the jury, referred to the 911 call and said, you have heard the testimony of, of the victim. Yeah, referred to it as testimony. Ju- Justice Scalia, if, it, if it's he had, not beyond the pale to consider this testimony. If, if, if he, he had made a statement about a co-conspirator statement during the course of a conspiracy, and he had said, we have here the testimony of the, his co-conspirator, conspirator, that would not make it testimony. And if the, the 911 well, call... would prove that, that, that it's not beyond the pale to call it testimony. Well, I, it just does not make it testimony. And if the, the prosecutor in the, the 911 case had said, I don't have her testimony, I have something better, it's a 911 call. Mr. Of her Garcia. cry for help, that wouldn't make it uh, not testimony. And Mr. I don't Mr. Garcia, think is this a fair summary of your position, if I may? We're really asking who's the witness that's being testified against. And when it's the affidavit, it's clearly the woman that's a witness, therefore it's inadmissible. But your view, as I understand you, is that when it's the officer who's the witness, he's subject to cross-examination. And as long as the emergency continues and he's describing what happened during the emergency, he's still the witness. That's what you're saying, I think. He's, he's still a witness. He's still the witness we're concerned he is the about. Witness Therefore, he's subject he's, to cross-examination. He's, he's the, he, he is subject to cross-examination. So during the emergency period, he can repeat what she said. But I, I, what I'm saying is that she's not a witness during the emergency I period also. It has to be both. But we focus not on whether it's testimony, but whether he's the witness at the critical time or whether she's the witness. I, I think that that's one way of looking at it, Justice Stevens. But that's I, not the way the Court looked at it in Crawford. No, I, I think that what you would look to see is if at the relevant time the the declarant the, um, the was acting as a witness. And at the relevant time, when somebody is answering a question to an avert and immediate danger, they're not acting as a witness. They're not making a solemn declaration for the purpose of proving facts to support a prosecution. And so they're not acting as a witness in those circumstances. And, and, and it's only later when the officer turns to soliciting from Ms. Hammond an affidavit that what he's soliciting at that point is a solemn declaration made for the purpose of proving facts to support a prosecution. Now, that's testimony. I'm not sure that two were, were as separated as you, as you claim. I, I, I took it that the affidavit, while he was getting the oral uh, responses, he was writing down what, uh, 
what would be put in the affidavit? I, I don't think that there's any evidence in the record to support that, mm-hmm. Justice Scalia. That, right. that what if happened is that he took, that he listened to her oral statement, right. and then he proceeded to ask for her for an affidavit after he had the information that he needed to resolve the emergency, was to figure out how he was going to protect this person from an immediate, renewed attack if he left the scene. But under your test, the whole question is whether the emergency continued at the time the witness's words are being repeated. It's not the whole question, because if the statement, the question has nothing to do with the, and the answer have nothing to do with the emergency. It does not come in under the rule we're no, talking I'm about. No, I'm not arguing that. I'm trying to figure out, I think I have a little different angle on it than you actually said in your brief, or actually than the text of Crawford. Of course, Crawford wasn't confronting this problem. It described everything as testimonial. But the real question is, who's the witness under the text of the Constitution? Well, and Justice Stevens, I'm, I'm happy to have your approach <laughs> if it, it, it leads to five votes in this case. I think I'm trying to help you. I'm not going to start out that way, but it seems to me it, I'm helping your side of it. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Goinstein. Mr. Friedman, you have four minutes remaining. I, I think that uh, whenever there is a, an out-of-court accusation repeated, there is a witness in court, but that is not the witness uh, that uh, — uh, or that doesn't satisfy the confrontation, right, because there's the — No, but you would agree that the officer could testify to some of the things that happened during the emergency, and he's a witness to that extent. The, the, uh, absolutely, the, the officer — The whether he can cover this as well. That's, that, of course, is the uh, that, that's the question. But uh, but she, she was acting as a, a witness when uh, when she made the accusation to the, to the officer. And characterizing it as an emergency, I don't think helps anything uh, in in this case. Uh, the, the the fact is that if we extend the emergency this far, it shows well it shows just how uh, uh, capable of expansion the the theory is, because there was an officer with her and there was an officer with uh, with him. So the, uh, the only question is, should the officers leave? That means that whenever there's, uh, there's a victim potentially at large there, uh, the confrontation right wouldn't, uh, wouldn't apply. Uh, the, the whole emergency doctrine really distorts incentives because a, uh, a police officer who has a, a dual motive uh, of creating, uh, of protecting people, protecting the safety of, uh, of people and gathering evidence, and I think it's clear that they do, under an emergency doctrine, would have an incentive to preserve the emergency or the appearance of emergency for for as long as uh, for as long as possible. And I, I think uh, the the state uh, in, encourages people to call, which of course they should do. But in part, the reason why people are encouraged to call is to is to create uh, is is to pass on is to pass on evidence. So I don't think that uh, even even if uh, the, even to the extent that the call is a, a crying for help. Well, the help is, uh, in, is seeking invocation of the uh, of the legal system. Uh, in the Davis case, of course, it was uh, an arrest. In in this case, the the statement was not a cry for help. It was in response to a second in, inquiry by the police officer. The police officer was uh, was pressing, and and I, I think the, uh, the the emergency doctrine. Simply, uh, simply can't. Uh, if, if, if there were an emergency doctrine, I think it's just badly founded. It couldn't apply here. If it pleases the court, I believe Crawford has brought us to a remarkable crossroads. If the accusation in this case is allowed to secure a conviction without the state providing an opportunity for confrontation, then the confrontation clause will be little more than a charade, easily evaded by state officers gathering evidence. 
But if the Court proclaims that a conviction cannot be based on an accusation made privately to a known police officer, then it will take a long step to ensure that the confrontation right remains robust as the framers intended for centuries to come. What about the resemblance idea to get around your problem? Of course, it's not purely formal. It's purely formal plus those things that resemble what's purely formal. I'm, I'm not sh- sure I quite un- understand. Listen, listen to it's, I, okay. uh, it's purely the formal criteria mm-hmm. plus anything that's the same. Now, same is vague, but it's no vaguer than a lot of other things floating around here today. So well, what do you think of that? I, I, um, not much, uh, Your Honor. Your Honor. Um, um, I, I don't think an accusation to a known law enforcement officer is awfully vague. Any legal term will have some, some vagueness around the edges, but I don't think there's much. Resemblance is awfully vague. I think what happened here resembled the inquisitorial practices in the key, in the key, re, in key respects. And I don't think uh, the test Your Honor is uh, proposing uh, handles the message over the Internet or, or a letter. It, it, uh, made at the initiative of the of the witness, uh, I, I think it, it, it utterly fails to get that because the, pro- the prosecutors aren't involved. But clearly, the confrontation clause was written against a backdrop of private prosecution, a system of private prosecution. So it has to get those clauses. I, I think that this case can be resolved on those very narrow grounds without trying to establish the broad general meaning of the confrontation clause. I'm, I'm hoping that the Court is building a framework for hundreds of years to, to, uh, to come, and I think it's more important that it be built right than that it be built quickly. And so I think an important first step is to say an accusation to a known police officer. Whatever else is testimonial, that clearly must be. There. No further questions. Please Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.